You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting as well. We can promise you this. When we're done, you'll be the most interesting person in the room. On this edition of Commute. The most viral video ever was made in 2012 and attempted to bring a Ugandan warlord named Joseph Kony to justice. So, like, whatever happened with that? Let's take a moment to appreciate and explore the ultimate behind-the-scenes, yes, pun intended, contributors to your favorite TV shows and your favorite movies. The casting director. eBay is home to all sorts of goods that you can buy, but deep within the corners of the site, we explore one of the strangest and most bizarre goods you can purchase online, haunted dolls. Ooh... All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Or I guess if one of the dolls was saying, let's get it. (laughs) That's not scary at all. So Dave, the year is 2012 and you've just logged on to Facebook and you see a viral video called Coney 2012. So I'm going to ask you two things. Number one, do you remember this viral video? I know you were on Facebook in 2012. And number two, did you share this viral video? I didn't share it. And to be honest with you, I don't really remember it. The only thing I know or remember about the Coney 2012 situation is that the guy that made it eventually found himself running naked in the streets. So I'm sure you'll talk about that at some point, but that's all I remember about the Coney 2012 video. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. I do remember the Coney 2012 video, and I did share it. I'll, I'll admit that. You know, at the time, I think... Uh, so, you're such a Boy Scout. We've <laughs> it came, well, it, We've came to, it came to us in a very strange time. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me fill in the gaps for you. So in 2012, an organization called Invisible Children, which was ran by three men, released a video online and a campaign that aimed to make one person famous overnight, a Ugandan warlord named Joseph Kony. So Kony was the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, which was a guerrilla group that had been around for decades and had already been indicted by the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity and war crimes such as sex trafficking and forcing children to become soldiers. And so Invisible Children, which was founded in 2004, launched this campaign that included shirts and wristbands and profile photos, all featuring Kony's name and photo, but the centerpiece was a 30-minute documentary posted to Facebook on March 5th, 2012 that called users to action. At the time, the documentary actually became the most watched viral video in the history of the internet, quickly racking up over 100 million views in a matter of days. And for days, it seemed like the only thing anyone could talk about on Facebook was Joseph Coney and the LRA. The documentary, it was shocking, and it highlighted crimes that had been going on in Uganda for years. People clamored for action against Coney, even if they didn't necessarily know who to direct their outrage to. 
Luckily, though, the video told us that there was something we could do to stop Coney. We could share the video. We could tell our friends. We could harass celebrities to share the video. And if we truly wanted to make a difference, we could shell out $30 for the signature action kit that included a Coney 2012 t-shirt. Remember, 2012 was an election year. Some wristbands and posters. As Christina Cotarucci for Slate puts it, There was a price point for every level of concern and awareness. So what became of this viral movement? Did the movement succeed? Well, it kind of depends on your definition of success. If the goal was to raise awareness, that goal was certainly accomplished. If the goal was to raise money, that was accomplished too. Invisible Children made $5 million in two days and gained massive donations from celebrities like Oprah Winfrey. But if the goal was to stop Coney, the campaign failed. To this day, although the LRA has waned in power in recent years, it still exists and Coney is still presumed to be alive, leading the group as he was in 2012. Invisible Children began receiving backlash months after the video, after it was revealed that only a third of all their funds went to programs that directly served people in Uganda. And Dave, like you mentioned at the top, 10 days after the release of the video, Jason Russell, one of the co-founders of Invisible Children, had a very public mental breakdown, which was filmed and put online, in which he was arrested for vandalizing cars while naked, which was evidently brought on by the stress caused by the sudden overnight publicity. The Coney 2012 campaign is a prime example of what people who study poverty and online media movements call clicktivism or slacktivism, which is supporting a cause without leaving a computer or phone screen. And oftentimes these movements receive criticism because not only do they generally not move the needle of action forward, but they also can give us a false sense of security that the problems of this world can be solved in this simple, non-intrusive, or non-complicated way. Clicktivist campaigns often take very complex and nuanced issues such as the one in Uganda and simplify it down to a very simple set of facts. There's a bad guy out there. We're the good guys. Click this button to defeat him. In an article for Slate written by Christina Cotarucci on the dangers of clicktivism, she cites a pretty interesting study on which participants were shown the original Coney video, the 30-minute one, and then a follow-up, more nuanced version of that video that was a response to the original one, and then measured the participants' level of outrage. And what they found is kind of what you'd expect. At the expense of the complicated understanding of the situation, outrage levels soar the more you water down the facts. Critics pointed out that the original Coney video failed to highlight the complexity of the Ugandan conflict, the long history of conflict in the region, including crimes committed by the Ugandan government, the dangers of militarizing the region, uh, and the complicated intricacies of international relations. In fact, Dave, in 2012, Coney hadn't even been in Uganda since 2006. Uh, In his book, Displacing Human Rights, War and Intervention in Northern Uganda, author Adam Branch wrote this. What is wrong with Coney 2012's approach? The warmongering, the narcissism, the commercialization, the reductive and one-sided story they tell, their portrayal of Africans as helpless children in need of rescue by white Americans. As a result of invisible children's irresponsible advocacy, 
civilians in Uganda and Central Africa may have had to pay a steep price in their own lives so that a lot of young Americans can feel good about themselves and a few can make good money. So Dave, the sad reality here is that these easy campaigns, they tend to do more for us, the doer, than it does for the victims being highlighted. The lesson of the Coney 2012 video is that skepticism is important in these cases. And a lot of us internet users learned that lesson for the first time being let down by the Coney movement after getting caught up in it. The Coney 2012 video stands as a lesson of the pitfalls of activism online, a lesson that many of us learned the hard way. Well, I think a good indication of where things are at on our radar is where they come up in the Google search results. And so if you just Google Joseph, there are a couple Josephs that come up before Joseph Coney. Okay, so things that obviously uh, we find more important are Googled more often. Joseph Gordon-Levitt comes up. Now, is he number one? He's number one. He's the okay. number one Joseph. Uh, Joseph Stalin is the number two Joseph. Number okay. three, Joseph Smith of Mormon fame. Okay. And uh, number four, uh, your boy Joseph A. Bank, the suit oh, yeah. guy. Okay. Okay. All right, Jay, hot take time. I don't think it's healthy to live with regret. I don't know how hot that take is, but I strongly (laughs) believe that. Okay, I don't think it's healthy to live with regret or to spend too much time in the past. But Jay, do you ever stop to ask yourself, what if? So, So like, for example, what if I hadn't asked out my wife? Or what if I would have learned how to skateboard instead of just sitting on the board and rolling down my driveway? (laughs) Surely you (laughs) you ask yourself, what if, do you not? Yeah, I mean, I think not in a way to sort of like dream. I don't think I've ever sort of like built up the what ifs as potentially being better than the life that I live now, which I guess is kind of what you're saying would be the danger, would be if you get attached to the the what if scenarios. Because ultimately, the what if scenarios aren't real. Where you're at now is what's real. Well, I think all of us do. It's just part of the human experience. We ask what if about the past, and we ask what if about you know what the future holds. But aside from the personal side of things, like me still being haunted by the what if I hadn't dressed up as the Pokemon Pikachu for Halloween when I was 13 years old, much too old to be dressing up as Pikachu. Homemade costume, by the way. So aside from that, I ask myself that question a lot, actually, Jay. The question of what if. And I especially ask myself this question when it comes to TV shows and movies. Like, what if The Office had actually cast Seth Rogen instead of Rain Wilson as Dwight Schrute? Or what if Craig T. Nelson hadn't passed on the role of Jay in Modern Family? Or what if Daniel Radcliffe had never been discovered as Harry Potter? I mean, would Harry Potter, the film franchise, have even been as successful as it was and continues to be? The actors we fall in love with while playing famous roles are all we've ever known. But how does it all happen? For the iconic roles that we can't imagine anyone else playing, or roles that were made for a certain actor who ultimately decided to pass, who makes that casting decision? Well, today, my friend, we explore the powerful behind-the-scenes impact of the casting director. Jay, for every Peter Jackson, there's an Amy Hubbard. 
Jackson is, of course, the famous Hollywood director responsible for bringing the literary classic story, The Lord of the Rings, to life. But Hubbard, well, Hubbard is the behind-the-scenes casting director who chose Elijah Wood to be the most famous hobbit in history, Frodo Baggins. Rarely interviewed and even less so recognized, casting directors literally bring a TV show or movie to life. While the right choice can become iconic, the wrong choice can doom even the best story. So Jay, what is life like for a casting director? What comes with the power of being the gatekeeper between struggling actor and big break? Well, for starters, it's a ton of work. Stephen Crockett, a casting agent for Hollywood musicals, put it this way to The Guardian. We send a breakdown of the characters we need to a certain number of agents usually between 200 and 300. Within a day or so, hundreds of envelopes arrive back to us. We divide them into characters and go through every single one trying to decide who to call to audition. Jay, for a major show or movie, as many as 500 actors may get called in for a single audition, with rounds and rounds of recalls leading to a short list for the director's ultimate input. And while 500 sounds like a ton, It's a relatively small number when you think about the sheer volume of potential acting talent. You know, every aspiring young actor or actress who jumps on a greyhound after college and the hope of making it. As evidenced by this, Jay, Spotlight, a directory that actors pay to join, comes in five volumes for each gender with an ever-expanding group of website listings. The entire process can take anywhere from three months to a full year before the entire cast is filled out for a certain project. And Jay, the casting director's job isn't finished when the A-list talent is evaluated and booked. Oftentimes, the casting of the extras or the co-stars is even more difficult. Mel Fabi, who worked on The Dark Knight Rises, the third film in the critically acclaimed Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, has helped to cast thousands of background actors and knows the almost impossible task is often overlooked. He told Mental Floss, if you're doing the principal casting, you sort of immediately know who's really good and what they've done before. That's completely opposite from background casting. You're working with relatively new and unknown actors. Anything can happen. So the next time you watch a movie with Hugh Jackman or friend of the show Tom Cruise, take a moment to think about the process that they went through to get the role. Even the A-listers, they have to audition for their parts. But more than that, Jay, think about the unknown people behind the scenes making the difficult decisions to go with Kate Winslet boarding the Titanic with Leonardo DiCaprio instead of the rumored original target, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, I I remember seeing the um, article about uh, the ones for The Office, like all the people who were kind of like the second choice of the people who played uh, the the cast of characters on The Office. And it's super interesting to look at that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I don't think there's an exact science to it. You know, you think of any movie 
uh, or TV show. You know, you bring up The Office, just something that in your mind there are faces associated with it. Steve Carell is Michael Scott. Well, imagine if somebody else had been cast as Steve Carell. The show would feel very different to you. And Jay, here are some fun and legendary casting decisions. Okay, you ready for this? These folks either turned down the role or lost out on the role at the very end. So think about how different these movies would have been. Okay, you ready? Yeah. John Travolta instead of Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump. <laughs> Paul Newman instead of Tom Hanks as Woody in Toy Story. And apparently <laughs> Newman's Woody was actually going to be the villain of the, uh, of the movie. Johnny Depp instead of Matthew Broderick in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, no. No, no, no. Will Smith. Will Smith instead of Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. One of my favorites, John Lovitz and Dana Carvey. Okay, think about John Lovitz and Dana Carvey instead of Martin Lawrence and Will Smith in Bad Boys. (laughs) And Jay, Jay, my favorite, Al Pacino or Christopher Walken. Instead of Harrison Ford as Han Solo oh. in Star Wars. Get hey, out of man. <laughs> I, I think the Death Star is a powerful tool, man. <laughs> Get out of here with that. Hey, Luke, man. Uh, it's it's, wor- it's even cool, worse now. It's somehow, it's somehow it's worse. It's a cool lightsaber, man. <laughs> Stop saying man. He doesn't say that. <laughs> So, Dave, we just left Halloween, and uh, I know you're not a huge scary movie guy, but have you ever seen any of the Chucky movies? No, no. Never seen the Chucky movies. I've seen very few horror movies. I've seen the first Halloween, which actually has no blood in it, so that's probably why. Uh, But never seen it, and I will go out on a limb and say never going to see it. Yeah, I don't really have a lot of interest in... uh seeing it either. Uh, Well, Dave, you may not know this, but there is actually a thriving market for haunted dolls online. And it's sort of more of a recent trend. Uh, Sites like eBay, Etsy, and Instagram all have thriving bases of buyers. And although haunted dolls typically sell for around $150, some of the more exclusive ones can sell for well over $1,000. Listings include very detailed backstories of how the doll got into the hands of the seller (laughs) and a very lengthy history of the spirits attached to the doll, including what angers or pleases them, what sort of details exist around their former life, and how many previous owners the spirit has scared off over the years. Uh, Certain features in dolls tend to drive a price up higher, such as uh, ones that have had several owners, ones that are more antiques, and ones that have had their spirits independently verified by a medium or a spirit expert. So I guess you're probably wondering the same thing I wondered when I learned about this, Dave, and that is, why would you want to own a haunted doll? It sort of seems like something I would want to get away from, not actually bring into my home. And sellers and buyers report several different levels of motivation, ranging from sort of a form of ghost hunting to some sort of like deeper emotional motivation. Uh, In an article for Mental Floss, Mike Ranton collected interviews from some sellers of haunted dolls. And here's one. I get a lot of customers who have lost someone and are trying to figure out how to communicate with them. I get a lot of mothers who have lost a child. 
Now, Dave, putting your haunted items on the market is not just as simple as just posting that something is haunted. I know what you're thinking. Uh, Sellers report that evaluations of their dolls can sometimes take months of multiple people comparing notes and feelings using electromagnetic frequency (laughs) readers, Ouija boards. This this doll's haunted right here. This one's not, but this one is. Using lucid dreaming techniques or pendulums to try to communicate to the spirits within the doll. And dolls are oftentimes even placed within soundproof boxes and then recorded to try to identify electronic voice phenomenon or EVPs. And many times these recordings are even included in the listings as proof of spiritual possession and communication. And if the information doesn't line up, then the doll is listed as possibly haunted and the price drops. So there are some obvious issues here when it comes to laws around buying and selling. Like you aren't legally allowed to sell something with descriptions that you can't prove. And since we haven't scientifically measured hauntings, most sites are very specific on how listings must be worded and presented. So the way around this is to list haunted dolls with with disclaimers stating that the presentation of these dolls is for entertainment purposes only with some pretty heavy winking in the bylines. Most of these stores have hundreds of positive reviews, though, from satisfied customers, and the listings are oftentimes just outright totally bizarre as they straddle the line between fact and fiction. Many include disclaimers on how to properly and safely bring spirits into your home, stressing that buying haunted dolls is not a joke, even behind a disclaimer of for entertainment purposes only. So you told me uh, a couple sources I could look up these sellers on eBay and on Etsy. And so I pulled one of them up. And even scarier than the haunted dolls that they're selling. So, so I pulled this this uh, seller up on eBay, and that yeah, there's some haunted dolls on here, and some weird. For some reason, they sell a bunch of, of like chlorophyll, which is very strange. Um, <laughs> so they have all these weird items. But as you scroll down their page, you come to uh, and now this is eighteen dollars and fifty cents to buy this. It is a Harrison Ford VHS <laughs> starter set. <laughs> it looks like we've got uh, Patriot Games. The Fugitive, Air Force One, and everyone's favorite Harrison Ford film, Sabrina. Yeah, you know, you can't exclusively pay the mortgage with haunted dolls. I mean, you gotta you gotta make the money in between. Spend the whole afternoon with Harrison. If I bought you a haunted doll, though, and we're talking like a legit one, it's been verified. Tell me if I put that haunted doll in your house. Lie to me and tell me you wouldn't be scared. I'd laugh at you, but Jay's so stupid. And then that night, I would probably put my house on the market. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.